This is Professional Life Crisis. I'm your host, Amanda. And by now, I'm a damn near professional at having a life crisis. This podcast is here to help you get through those messy, uncertain times riddled with ramen noodles and self-doubt. If you're an ambitious, curious young professional trying to pave your way in the world, it's not as scary as I once thought it was, but I really wish I'd had someone to tell me that. Well, Porter, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to meet each other at a conference a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, I felt like when I met you, I felt like we shared a very similar sense of how engaged we are in conversation and how much we love sort of building community with other people. Like I can sense that from you right away. And so I'm so happy that you wanted to come on the podcast and talk a bit about your career. So thanks Thank for you so on. much for having me. Oh my gosh, I, this is an honor. I'm so excited. I mean, I'll take any opportunity to have a conversation with you. So who cares if this one's yeah. recorded? Oh, love it. Yes, that's great. That's a great <laughs> way to look at it. Um, so Porter, for everyone who will eventually be listening, um, but not right now, don't worry, this between us right now. Um, <laughs> who Who is Porter? What do you want to be known for out in the world? Ooh, that is a really good question. Um, Well, hi, my name is Porter Hayes. And I guess adding a simple fact, I live in New York City, might be biased, but one of the best places on earth, if you ask me. (laughs) And what I want to be known for professionally is making impact. More honestly said, I want to be known for getting shit done. And I'll be honest, I'm still kind of figuring out exactly what getting shit done will look like, but that's kind of the beauty of or what, what I hope to, to get done. Long. Yes. Yes. There's, <laughs> there's, there's something freeing and allowing myself to just ex- still be exploring. And outside of my professional life, I want to be known for living a full life. I, I'm one of those people who's really curious, has this insatiable, just try everything attitude and put me in front of something and I'll figure it out and either learn something or have fun or both in the process. Yeah, I can relate to that too. I'm I'm definitely a uh, get shit done GSD type of gal as well. GSD, um, yeah. But I too am kind of going through a little bit of a career renaissance mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what really excites me and what kind of shit I want to get done out in the professional world and who I want to do it for, whether that's another company or if that's for myself. I think that that feeling is is shared by so many people our age. It's completely like on, on one hand, you feel like you have tried a lot of things and you have had various experiences at this point, but there's also so much that's still unknown and yet to be explored. And I I feel like both excited and also scared about that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like I'm going to be, and like many people may feel this way, that you'll be in this constant state of adolescence almost in work life and Mm -hmm. life life and whatever, where you feel like you know, the saying, not a girl, not yet a woman, where you feel like you've, you've lived enough to have opinions and, and ideas and expectations of what you want, but you also feel like there's so much left to do so much left to live. And that's kind of where that in between state is. And I'm coming to the realization that I think, you know, 40 years from now, I'm still going to feel that way. And I also think there's an element where the world is changing so quickly that I think being in that kind of open-minded state is actually more of a benefit than a a point of indecision. (laughs) Mm. I don't know if it makes me feel better or worse to think that we're in constant adolescence. (laughs) You know, I think (laughs) there's so much imposter syndrome floating around with myself, especially right now. 
And I think there's a little bit of comfort in thinking that eventually you will be like a quote unquote adult or that you will have figured things out. But I think it's probably so much more true that you're always learning something new, both Mm -hmm. about the field you work in and about yourself, um, that maybe there is always that element of adolescence in your mindset or in your curiosity or I don't know. I hope some of that imposter syndrome fades away, even if that childlike sense of curiosity and wonder remains. Totally. And I think that's a really good point. And believe me, we could talk for several episodes about imposter syndrome. It's something I'm still, you know, working on the antidote to. But so far in my experience trying to combat it, I think that really you won't ever be able to control everything in the world or everything around you, but you will be able to control how you feel about yourself. And so that adolescence around, Mm -hmm. you don't know what's coming and you don't know what the future holds. I don't think that will go away, but what you can come to find is that you trust yourself enough that you'll be able to handle whatever comes. And that I think is how I'm approaching, you know, combating imposter syndrome while also facing that acceptance of continuous adolescence. Yeah, I think that's so true. It's like you're you're always in situations where you don't know everything, maybe even in situations where you don't know most things. Mm. But maybe shedding that imposter syndrome is more about that unwavering sense of self-confidence that you are in the right place, doing the right thing, figuring it out, um, and that you can get to the answers. It's not that you suddenly start having the answers for everything. Yes, that makes I love me that. feel a little better. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's great. Yeah. Okay. You'll have to come on for like those four or five extra episodes about (laughs) imposter syndrome. I'll be calling you back. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. So tell me briefly about what your career journey has looked like up until this point and what sort of brought you to the work that you're doing now and what is it that you're doing now? Yeah. My career has been a really interesting series of hops with full gratitude to have uh, allowed me to experience a range of points of focus and industries and company types. And my favorite and what I assume is your favorite is a range of people, which has mm-hmm. just been incredible. I started my career in Boston working for a boutique consulting firm and that firm function somewhere between like a traditional management consulting group and a market insights house. And the reason I say that is because the, the key difference I'd say is that instead of having one case or company that I was assigned to, uh, I had this several at the same time. And that was what really sparked this core passion for me, which is really to be experiencing as much as you can at once. And that while you can't have everything, you can and should be able to have a lot. And that is what really helps you refine and define what you do. Mm. And more importantly, sometimes do not want to do with your life. Yes. Um, Yeah. So that was the beginning. And that, that was, that was great in many ways. They actually had me move to San Francisco and start an office there. And from there, I, I became beyond site at a few tech clients. And that was my first foray into tech, which you know, we'll have a resurgence at the end of this little blurb about myself. And I loved consulting. And I know that we share that background. Yeah, I'm curious. (laughs) We do, although not the same perspective. I definitely did not enjoy it. But I'd be so curious to talk more about that, because everybody has such a different um, experience and perspective on it. There's something nice about being able to come in and be able to hyper focus on a single or singular ish theme of of goals and 
just focus on that and not have to worry about, you know, getting to know all of the systems as in depth as if you were moving in house and not having to deal per se with the politics and the internal structure and hierarchy as much. Like you're given a really clear sandbox and you're coming in as usually the experts in something. Um, and so there's, there's something nice about that and kind of freeing, honestly, about putting it down at the end of the day. I do think there is definitely a downside, though, which for me was I hated that it was kind of a black box. Like at the end of the day, at the end of the assignment, at the end of all of these weeks or months or whatever the time period was of high stress and long hours and whatnot, you hand over your recommendations and guidance, and then it just kind of goes into the ether. And you're not given really often um, a seat at that table. And you sometimes aren't even able to to really understand one, if a decision went through or mm-hmm. why a decision may or may not have gone through. And so not having access also sometimes to like the full set of data that would really help you make even better recommendations for decisions, that was really frustrating to me. And that's actually ultimately why I chose to move in-house a number of years. I'm curious if part of the reason that you had a more positive experience in consulting is because you did work for a really boutique firm focused on marketing. Whereas I started working for a huge firm. I worked for Accenture, half a million people. It was very easy as an analyst to feel very lost in the sauce. And before (laughs) I really had a specialty of my own, I just felt very um, like I couldn't provide that kind of expertise service that you were talking about was one of the ways that sort of gave you a sense of value that you were bringing to your clients. (laughs) On the other hand, I felt like A lot of the projects that I worked on before I got into the marketing function, it was about two years in before I got into marketing. Mm -hmm. Um, They were just so vague and I wasn't personally interested in any of the like technology implementation projects that I worked on. Um, I couldn't really see my impact at the end of the day. I couldn't really see my impact at the end of the day, which I think also ties a little bit to what you said. It's like you, you hand over things to the client and it's their job to take them forward and you don't really get to see the outcome. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe you get some hints, maybe you're on the project for a long time. So you do sort of see a little bit of it come through, but so much of it is, yeah, like you turn over the strategy and then the company goes and operates on their own. So I could, I could understand that piece. One thing that you said though, that I was surprised that I like totally disagree with is that working for a boutique consulting firm that you didn't have to deal with the politics of the inner workings of your client's company and that that like provided some reprieve for you. I would agree with that to a certain extent, but I felt like I had to deal with so many politics within the actual consulting company that I worked for. And that was like filled with red tape and it just felt so political. And so that's the part of it that I really hated. Um, But it's a good point. I never really thought about being able to abstain from the politics or the drama at the client. Yeah. It's an interesting sort of perspective. I think you're... I think you're right to point that out. And, you know, to be honest, this was a number of years ago. So perhaps I've kind of just held on to more of the the positive memories about it. I think I completely agree that, you know, dealing with the politics of the firm I was at uh, was definitely a part of the day to day, though my fear may better, maybe better said my fear in going into consulting is that I would have to do both at once. But if you have a really good internal champion, or, or even just 
a decent internal champion. For me personally, it's easier to support someone to navigate internal politics than it is than to, to be involved to yourself. Do it myself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. two companies. Okay, I'll give one. you that one. Yeah. I'll give you that one. We can both be right. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. So tell me what happened at the end of your consulting journey. Where did you land next? Yeah. So at the end of my time, as I said, I really wanted to be able to have access to better data, more people, more information to really hone in my ability to make recommendations and help make decisions for companies. And for me, a natural progression felt like corporate strategy. So I took a role at Gap Inc., focusing across their brands. So like Athleta, Banana Republic, of course, Gap. Um, some faves. Yeah, some faves. <laughs> Hashtag sponsor us. <laughs> yes. You can't see me, but wearing Athleta right now. I'll, and it is Athleta, not Athleta, for anyone yes, who's curious. Yes. Oh my um, God, do people say that? Of course, of course. But you know what? Like, we don't really care. Well, I don't work there anymore, but I'm sure they don't care as much about how you say it as they do that you As long as you buy their there. workout yeah. clothes. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe it's one of those, you know, like falsely designed uh, th- things that gets engagement, right? To get people talking about, you know, resets, resees, like a faux maybe, marketing strategy maybe. to get engagement. It's not, but I can start that rumor. Just I kidding. Didn't even, wow, I didn't even think that that was a hard one to pronounce. Uh, also like Chipotle, why can nobody say Chipotle older yes. than like the age of like 40? They're all like Chipotle. I'm like, it's just a pepper. No, oh my God, stop. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm not a thousand. Okay. So, yeah. How how was working at Gap? Like, did you enjoy representing those brands? Did you enjoy the corporate strategy space? Like, was it in a more enriching experience? I did. I find that corporate strategy was kind of like taking all of the skills I had learned in consulting and just applying them in a more focused way. And I loved it because it really helped me keep a breadth of experience while also uh, giving me some exposure to stuff that I wouldn't have had in consulting. So there was actually a stint where I was working pretty heavily at the same time on pricing and yield management, which was great because especially with such a heavy focus on market insights, you can either not have exposure or not have awareness to the financial side of the house. And so being in a role that allowed me to be creative about where one of our brands would be going in three years and whether they should launch like into a whole new category was also tempered with the yield management side, which is how many dollars will we get back based on dollars spent and just kind of like this efficiency optimization that is kind of a, a core part of who I am. And it, it really played on that and expanded my interest in doing things like that. Thanks for defining that because I was just about to ask what, uh, what was it called? Was it yield? Yield management. Yeah. I was just about to ask what that is because I don't know if most people (laughs) listening will know. And one of the things I want to do on this podcast is actually start an entire series called What the Fuck Is and then like define different jobs in each episode. So I feel like we could even do a little mini session on corporate (laughs) strategy. If you had to explain what corporate strategy is to someone who's 22 and just coming out of college and has no idea what they're doing with their life, what would you tell them it is? That is so much pressure. And, you know, there is, <laughs> there is, if, if you're fresh out of college or even in college, you may have heard, everyone's made this joke. So Michael Porter is the creator of Porter's Five Forces, which is the framework that's used in, in strategy classes pretty much everywhere. 
And Is that so, the five Ps? Yes. Everybody oh, that's so funny. The joke about, oh, Porter, Porter's five forces. How would I answer that? Um, <laughs> I would say that if you really, really, really oversimplified, corporate strategy is basically having this bird's eye view of the company that you're in and using the information, usually historical, but also external to the company to help create a path of where the company is going, usually in a semi long term nature. But I believe that corporate strategy is also ensuring that you're on the track that you charted, you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months ago. And you're kind of like the bumpers on a bowling alley lane, like, but except for if it wasn't straight, like you may need to curve a little bit. And you may need to take into account that, that, you know, COVID happens. So it totally upends what your company strategy is, right? Maybe a better analogy would be around like, a ship. You look out for the waves, you adjust the sail, and you just chart a course for your ship. I'm a pirate now. Yeah. It's my next career pivot. <laughs> I am so excited to see the outfit that comes along with that career yes. pivot. <laughs> I have included for sure. So would you say that corporate strategy is um, like what function is it the closest to? Is it closest to finance and like sales projections and seeing sort of where you think the company is going to land based on not only what the predictions were and what the plan was, but also how well you're tracking toward that plan. I would say that in my experience where I've seen it best work is it's kind of its own centralized function. But that being said, I have sat under the finance officer, the product officer, the marketing officer in various roles in my career. And, you know, there are benefits to all of those things. My personal bias to getting as much exposure as possible to different types of projects under the corporate strategy umbrella, I like it to be centralized, but it kind of depends on what your company is and also how it's structured. So are you a product-led company, it's probably better to be a little bit closer to product. Are you Mm. a growth-led company? It's better to be a little bit closer to growth or marketing. And so it should be wherever it best fits. Yeah. It's like the connective tissue for for the company, you know? Love it. Love it. Okay. So you're working in corporate strategy and you're in San Francisco at this time, right? Yes. I'm in San Francisco. Uh, got California out of my system. Uh, very grateful <laughs> for my time there. And I love California so much, but <laughs> not you? SF. Yes, I love okay. SoCal, but you could not pay me to live in SF. <laughs> Listen, I don't want to talk shit about any city in particular, but I don't worry. I will. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I had a nose ring. I don't know what happened to me there. Stop. I think there's something in the water. I got my nose pierced <laughs> twice, actually. And by that, I mean my nose rejected it. And then I got it pierced again. And I just, I really wanted San Francisco to work for me. You wanted and to be that girly. I did. I wanted to be that girly. And it actually, so next I moved to New York City. And, and uh, that was I think COVID. that makes so much sense. Just based yes. on like what I know about you. You're so New York. So I don't New know York. what I was thinking. I really don't know what I was thinking. But getting a range of experiences helps you better define who you are, right? But it also helps you define who so you're much. not. And I'm not yes. someone who's who's the best version of myself in Boston. I'm not someone who's the best version of myself in San Francisco. I am someone who is the best version of myself in New York City. And the way I know that that's true is because 
I realize in retrospect how much I bent to those cities, like the nose ring, like everything I did in Boston to fit in. You know, I was like, woohoo, go Pats. I don't watch sports. But in New York, (laughs) I feel like this New York City bends to me and I don't have to, you know, flex certain parts of myself to feel comfortable. And that's what I think everyone should shoot for is that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, like, I, I, I've grown up on Long Island, so I'm a New Yorker through and through, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not a New York City New Yorker. And I know that about myself. I love it. enjoy it for all that it offers when I'm there. I love seeing all my friends who live there. I love meeting up for coffee. I love doing WeWork days. But then I love coming home to the quiet suburbs. Like that is where I find peace. And I think it, you're right. It's It's as important to learn what you don't want for yourself as much as what you do want. So I know that this is meant to be you asking me questions, which has been hard for me because all I've wanted to do is ask you questions, but I'm going to allow myself one. Um, To what degree would you recommend that someone pick a place to live based on a job? So would you say place you love, job you hate? Oh, wow. You knew. I love it. I love how quickly you know the answer. Yeah, Go on, I would never please. move to a city I didn't like for a job that I wanted. Never. I'm a little biased like about this perspective. This is also so interesting that you asked me this question. For me, I have learned that one of those things that works incredibly well is remote work. I know there mm. are plenty of people and plenty of companies for which that does not work and that's not their ideal setting. And I totally respect that. There are some people that truly just thrive on being in the office and seeing other people. Mm. For me, I thrive on the flexibility. I thrive on the travel aspect. My partner currently lives in Phoenix. So being able to go back and forth without taking time off of work is wow. incredibly important to me. Um But even before all of that was a factor in my life, I just work really effectively remotely. And given that I'm not a New York City girly, um, I hate the commute. (laughs) So those are all some of the reasons that remote work really works well for me. That being said, it's not the thing for everyone. Mm. But funny story, when I was in college and we were getting ready to graduate, I was dating this guy who was a software engineer. And he decided to take a job in Seattle without really consulting me, even though he is from the East Coast and we could have easily made a life back in New York work. So I think I have an extra negative perspective on people who like prioritize a job at all costs, even to live in a place that they don't want to live. I think that's a little biased of me, but no, I love that. Yeah, I so for me, like I, I just think there's so many amazing opportunities and companies right now that are fine mm-hmm. with remote and who thrive in a remote environment. So for me, I'm never picking a job over a location, but I do think there's also benefit for people who move to a new city and they do learn a lot about themselves. Like, right. I'm not saying by any means it's a death sentence and that no one should like try something new. Um, I just think like if you know yourself and you know that's not where you want to be for XYZ reasons or you've been there before and it just doesn't bring out the best in you, fuck it. Don't take the job. Yeah, I I think that's a good barometer, right? Like if you if you know that the answer is no, then don't do it. But if you're not sure what the answer is, then consider it. Then maybe then maybe try. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we we covered a bit about your move to New York City, taking out your nose ring and starting to work in corporate strategy. Yes. At that point, I did start a new role in corporate strategy back in tech. And this is the resurgence that I was hinting at blatantly earlier. Let's hear Uh, it. Yes. Resurge. I, I got some fabulous advice once, which was to change one thing at a time. So, 
you can change roles or industries, basically, but only choose one. So mm-hmm. I stuck with corporate strategy, but I Keep totally something consistent and right makes the transition and a little easier. Listen, retail has my heart and most assuredly my wallet, but I really was craving <laughs> being back in the tech world. So I moved to the company I'm at now on Fido, which is an identity verification company, and it is incredible. And I started in a corporate strategy role there, but actually over the years I've jumped around a little bit, which is where that, you know, changing one thing at a time comes in. So we talked about earlier how you know, strategy can be in a lot of different places in a company. It just kind of depends how the company is structured. And the way that my company is structured, I wanted a lot more exposure to product, which I had never really been that close to, as well as the marketing arm of this company, which was doing stuff that I had not had direct exposure to even when I was working in marketing. And so I took a role on the product marketing team. And I find that strategy is really such a versatile foundation and it really allowed me to take what I knew and apply new learnings. But then also as I learned things, share back with my team with a unique perspective. And I think that that was great because when you're new to something and you feel like I'm not providing any value whatsoever and you get self-conscious about it, this felt like, you know, obviously I, I wasn't number one on the team, but I didn't feel like I was contributing nothing. And that's why I really do recommend, you know, a more generalized role like strategy or consulting, if you're not totally sure about where you want your career to go. And then after some time there, there became this need for a role that kind of served as the connective tissue between product marketing and growth, I run the growth strategy and enablement function for my company. And it's a total blast. I love it. That's awesome. I feel like I can totally see you thriving in that kind of role that touches like cross-functional areas of the business based on all of the experience that you've had that you brought into that role. And then you were able to do even more learnings within that company that sort of positioned you really well for that. Thank you for saying that. That's really kind. I do really love you know, people and working cross-functionally in any capacity is just kind of where I bloom. Do you feel like you carry the same skills across different roles? Um, I think my skills from consulting were vastly different than the skills that I needed to succeed at a startup. Ooh, say more so about that. I think in consulting, I learned so many interpersonal skills. I learned about like excellent client service and how to maintain really great trusting relationships with clients. Um, I learned the shit out of Excel and PowerPoint and <laughs> could put together, you know, freaking snazzy ass presentation on whatever topic for whatever mm-hmm. client. Yeah. Um, And I learned how to sell work and I learned how to write contracts and how to upsell and all of those sorts of things that go along with. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. And make sure that you're staffed. Um, (laughs) So if you're not chargeable, then, you know, causes some problems. And in working for a startup, I got so much more hands-on experience with actually running a business. You know, it, I worked for a, at the time it was a 10 person company when I joined, it was five people right before I got laid off and then three people after I got laid off. 
it was just such a different scale that I was just I was just so much more hands on. I was running the marketing function between coming up with the strategy, figuring out how that was going to play back to all of our OKRs. I was running TikTok campaigns, working with influencers, writing emails, like responding to customer inquiries. It was just it was really much like more an hands on and much more tactical. Literally. Yeah. If I had eight arms, that would have probably been faster <laughs> than the two that I have. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think it was very different. But it's like the combination of both of those experiences now, I think, positions me really well to go into a company with a really strategic mindset and be able to look quickly at different areas of the business and figure out how I can help them right away. So mm-hmm. I, I think it was all valuable, but it was super different. Shall we get on to talking a little bit about the story of your professional life crisis owed Let's to the name it. of the podcast? Okay. Yes. So talk to me about what was going on in your career at the time that you went through this crisis. I am grateful to have lived it because I learned a lot. But it can be so hard th- and you can be grateful at the same yeah, time, you know? Yes. Two things can be true at once. So I was really early in my career. This happened right out the gate, to be honest. I was working at that consulting firm and I was so hungry, so, so hungry. All I wanted was the next goalpost. I wanted, you know, that next title. I cared about nothing but getting like the validation of the professional world. I think there was a part of my brain that just thought, if I can get to the next level really quickly, then it's kind of a guarantee that I made a good decision to join this company and that I'll have a successful career. And Mm. I also think that there's kind of this stigma almost around being new to a company where you don't, you don't even know where the bathrooms are. And so I just wanted to kind of push away from that level one title Mm, as quickly mm -hmm. as I possibly could. And so I was desperate, desperate. I think I was half right in believing that feedback was really the key to get ahead to achieve my goals. And why I say half right is because feedback is really important. And it is, in a sense, the key to get ahead. But I was half wrong, because I took all of it to heart. And I didn't really Mm -hmm. think about it or pressure test it. I just took this, you know, external opinion, basically, about me and deeply embedded it in myself and acted on it immediately, which In retrospect, I kind of wish I hadn't done because in this professional life crisis, it was one of my first review cycles of my career. And so I was nervous because I'd never gone through this before. And it's kind of like awkward and and embarrassing to be served on a platter for other people. It is, especially the way they do promotions and reviews and consulting. It all feels like very robotic. Um, Right. And mm -hmm. there are so many people going for the same promotion that... Yep it's not quite clear how exactly to do it. And Mm -hmm. so I got my formal review back. And the way that we we had a rating system, I got high marks on that. I was told that I had great work product. I even got a meaningful raise, which was great. But I didn't get the promotion. And I was totally crushed on the things to improve section, you know, the reasoning for why I didn't get promoted, his formal feedback to me was to be less Porter. I will never forget it. Um, I actually still have the PDF with it on there. 
Um, that is, oh my God. First of all, so inappropriate, but also just like a <laughs> dagger. Like, oh, it's dumb. It like, really when dumb. you're when you're that age and you're so new to the professional world, like someone telling you to dim that part of who you are, it, it's it's like so severely damaging. I. I I feel like you should get a tattoo that says <laughs> be more porter. <laughs> like, yeah, just be more porter. that fucking guy. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, listen, I don't think it was ill intention. I can maybe see a sliver of an argument for where a better delivery of a more professional message mm-hmm. could maybe exist. If it's but detracting was, from your work. Maybe. By the way, I was going from being a nobody level one to a nobody level one A. Like it right, was right. not that <laughs> fucking serious. It was not that yeah. deep and it didn't call for you. And by the way, it wasn't like, oh, be be less talkative, be less insert personality trait here. It was just be less quarter, yeah. which is in retrospect awful and i'm pretty sure i yeah. cried in the in a conference room that i booked for myself for like a solid 10 minutes <laughs> oh yeah we love the uh booking a room to cry at work oh definitely been yeah. there before <laughs> yeah it's great it's great but it's so dehumanizing that you have to book a room like you can't even just walk into a room and quietly cry you're like all right let me see what's available <laughs> well, we also had an open floor plan so like you can't you don't even have the privacy of like a, a desk I know, or a cubicle it's mortifying the oh, lesson here is gosh. bring back cubicles you know let me cry in peace. <laughs> uh, okay. no. so i get so, this feedback yeah what do you do with that like what do you do with that feedback so unfortunately i was stupid no i'm not going to call myself a mean name i was naive and i was hungry and i was inexperienced and so i took it really seriously, like really seriously. I went home and I did this whole kind of introspective analysis and I talked to my roommates at the time about how I presented myself and, you know, ideas for ways to curtail a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm not a wallflower, you know, like it, there's a lot, as you said, like yeah. you didn't say, oh, I think you'd fit in great in like Albuquerque. You thought I'd fit in great in, in New York City, right? Like, <laughs> I've come to accept that yes, I'm not yes, exactly. everybody's cup of tea. And, um, but I, I came up with a plan and I started dressing differently. I brought the most sterile, corporate, lame version of myself I possibly could to work every day. And I really, oh my God, was, that's all. I got like kind of praised for it from this manager as well. Oh, that gives me like the creepiest little feeling down my spine of like, Ugh, like like the fact that we have to scale back on our personalities and the vibrancy that we bring to work just because it makes a man feel like yeah uncomfortable or overshadowed. I hate that that's the world that we live in and that that's the experience that you had. Yeah, it, it really sucked. And you want to know where it got me? Nowhere. Because the next cycle, I also didn't get the title, Bob. Um, oh my God, and this you want to know this, why? Like chasing this moving target. I didn't stand out. It's because I didn't stand out Shut enough that next time. Up. Swear to God. Swear to God. And I get it, actually, because uh, as we talked about earlier, like, especially at a larger company where it's everyone with the same title doing the same work, going mm-hmm. for the next title at the same time, because there's, you know, limited cycles, you do kind of need to stand out. And I actually think that one of the things that helps me in my career today is standing out. So I wish I'd thought about it the way I think about it now. And 
really taken a second to think honestly about who this feedback was coming from. I mean, I am a Mm -hmm. firm, firm believer that you need to listen to all feedback, no matter who it's coming from, respectfully and think about it. But what you don't have to do is agree with it and take it seriously and integrate it into yourself. Um, Yes. I mean, like to internalize like other people's views based on their lived perspective and their experiences about us. Right. And And also, I think that was really hard. You know, like being that age, I'm just, oh my gosh, I'm thinking back to like little like 22, 23 year old Amanda and consulting. Right. And thankfully, I I didn't have an experience quite like this, but it, it did feel that way where even taking advice from people felt like, oh, these these people, like, they just know everything. Like, I need to suck it up like a sponge. And realistically, you need to have your own filter for what you take to heart. Because otherwise, like, how how are you going to implement all of this feedback? You're going to be chasing, like, every different direction, and you're going to lose sight of who you are. I completely, completely agree. And I also think one of the core lessons I got from that experience is to not take criticism from someone I wouldn't take advice from. I mean, looking back, Mm, this manager lived in a city I'd never want to live in, had been at this level for a longer period of time than I would have been comfortable being there, was not known as a fabulous collaborator, no judgment, but was not who I wanted to be. So I, I use that now, right? I think about who is telling me this feedback and what lens from their life might be perhaps coloring what they're saying to me. And not to say that you should only think what you think. You really do. You should leverage feedback because it is a way to get ahead. But you need to have a filter for what you allow to really affect you and to move you because it's not good to just sponge it all up. Yes, 150%. Yeah. Let's talk now a little bit more about something that I think has been implied throughout this whole conversation, but maybe we haven't explicitly called it out yet. Mm-hmm. Do you think that your identity as a woman has affected your experiences in the workplace and this feedback that you received? I do. Like many women in that crisis, there was no commentary that was negative on my work performance that was holding me back. It was just personality traits, by the way, not even specific ones, just Porter, right. generally, just Porter. which unless I'm, I'm missing something, it's not actually used worldwide. Um, right. but there was just personality traits that for some reason were considered valid enough to be formalized feedback that went into the computer system that HR also approved of sending. And it's, it's really sad how often the gendered norms still impede women from advancing. And by the way, it is tenfold, tenfold for women of color. And there's just this dance that honestly, sometimes I still find myself doing of what I've seen named as like the warmth confidence line. And I, Mm, I'm still navigating it. I mean, do you feel like there's been times in your career where you've just said, wow, I wish I was a man? Oh, yes. Um, Taylor Swift song plays in the back of my head all the time. I think it's because men are given this automatic assumption of competence where Mm. women have to come in and prove it not just once, but time and time and time again. And also, I think that 
oftentimes women with strong, vibrant personalities can be looked at as not as intelligent or not as serious, Mm. where that's not necessarily true at all. But they're bringing their entire self to work, which brings more than just their... um, um, it, it brings more than just their, you know, ability to financial plan and to create great growth strategies. Like we are all people and our entire personality, our entire being shapes how we show up. And mm-hmm. the fact that we even have to think to ourselves, oh, like maybe I should scale back a little bit, or maybe I can't, you know, be as bright and excitable on this call because everyone yeah. else is sort of Remove dreary. Remove an exclamation and, like, point. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, like edit my emails. Let me take out, you know, three out of the four exclamation marks that I right. wrote. It is just this constant state of self-questioning and reflection that I think we have to do that I really wish we didn't. And, mm-hmm. you know, granted, there have been some places where I've worked where I have felt more able to be myself and to be able to bring that. Um, but sometimes I still I still feel self-conscious being myself around people who come off a bit shyer and aren't sort of as animated as myself. I think there's something to what you said around this tension between being vibrant and happy and loud and excitable or any combination of adjectives like that and also being serious. Mm -hmm. And I do think that cutting a little bit of grace to my former manager who gave that feedback, I do think that that was kind of at the heart of it, where he almost feared that others would feel that way. And I think that's Mm. why he gave that feedback. But it was like a word of caution, maybe more so than his direct problem with it. Right. And I do think there's another element of being a woman in the workplace and kind of not only just holding, you know, seriousness and professionalism and positivity and joy at the same time, but also in terms of actual output. I'm, I'm not sure if you have experiences with something I was speaking to a colleague about recently was when you think about women's traditional role in life, they are you know, the core of the household, they are the one who is typically in charge of children, predominantly, they are typically the one who does the planning, who does the grocery shopping, who does the cooking, who schedules when you're going to see your in-laws, etc. And then now there are more women in the workforce now than there are men, which I love. But it's kind of just been added to the plate rather than replacing for a lot. And so I wonder if there's kind of this innate expectation, because My experience has been when you are in a role and you're doing your job, but then you're also kind of being, you know, the levity in a room and you're being the holiday party planner and you're on this committee and you're in this resource group. It's not. And you're also like running the finance and running the marketing and making sure your go to market strategy is like tip top shape. Yeah, I'm so glad you called this out because I agree that I think now it's just an added expectation. It's not even a substitution. Right. It's not like rewarded. It's seen as kind of virtuous, but also expected. And so I definitely do think that those are the kinds of things that I think about with regard to my experience as being a woman who's got high career ambitions. Okay. So looking back on your own journey and navigating the feedback from others, What advice would you give to other young women who 
maybe earlier in their career and they're questioning themselves in the same type of way that you were? Ooh, good question. Well, I love what you said earlier, how you phrased it around how in a way my former manager was asking me to dim my light. So I guess using your wording, I would say don't dim your light for anyone is advice that I would give both myself and others. But I would also say always solicit feedback and respectfully listen, but don't take criticism from someone that you wouldn't take advice from. That Mm, to me feels like a big the big learning. And then I think as I've thought about feedback generally and had more experiences with maybe taking feedback I shouldn't have taken or not taking feedback that I should have taken, I've come to this realization and this way of filtering that feedback is a tool. And you should view yourself, in my opinion, as a skill collector in everything you do and everywhere you go. And no matter what you do in your career, if you change jobs, if you change managers, if you change teams in your company, you will need to unlearn something to fit in better there and to be able to be more effective there. And I see it as akin to when you travel to a new country, you have to get an adapter and change the plug in order for your appliance to work there. And I think don't take things out of yourself or change yourself, focus on how you can better plug in. Like when you go to Spain, you don't start taking stuff out of your hairdryer in order to blow your hair there. You take your, (laughs) you leave your hairdryer as it is and you get an adapter and you plug it in differently. And it works just fine as long as the voltage isn't off. And sometimes you blow the fuse and you know what, sometimes that'll happen in your career too, but. Oh my um, God, I love this. I love this um, (laughs) metaphor. The core is, yeah, just just focus on how you plug in and, and always be grateful for skills that you collect, even if you may not be using them at this point in time. Skills are like Pokemon. You got to catch them all. But... Got to catch them all. Yeah. That's great. And I think after having this conversation with you, the last piece of advice I would share is something that my mom always said that. I realize now really applies to this situation as well, this professional life crisis, which is if you don't ask, you know the answer. And what it implies is that the answer is no. And what I mean by that is looking back, part of the reason why I so heavily embedded what this former manager thought of me as you know a path of action is because he was my only conduit to the entire company. And if I had been building relationships with other people at a higher level and being more clear about what I wanted and and asking for what I wanted, I wouldn't have had to rely so heavily on that manager. And and I, I know that they always say, you know, you should ask for what you want and go after what you want. But I think a more motivating way of saying it for me is if you don't ask, you almost guarantee that the answer is no. And so that's where I'd leave the last bit of advice. That is great. Oh my gosh. Those were like four or five, I don't know how many nuggets (laughs) that I think people in their early career, especially young women, will find to be so validating and helpful as they're trying to navigate a lot of the professional world and trying to figure out who do I want to be like? Who do I respect? And whose advice do I really want to implement in my own life? And whose feedback do I really value versus, you know, what is just noise? So thank you for all of those. That's great. 
Is there anything else that you would tell yourself if you were back in your professional life crisis situation again? Snap out of it. No, um, I would be very kind because I'm grateful for her and everything she went through because it led me to here, not to be too woo-woo. But I, I love a probably, little woo-woo. <laughs> yeah, what, what's, what's a day without a little woo-woo? Um, yeah. I would say that being a sponge is great, but it should have its limits. I would also say that sometimes unlearning something is just as important as learning something. And that, that it doesn't mean that you failed or that you've made a wrong decision. It's just you made the best decision that you could with the information you had at the time. And now that you have new information, you're going to make another decision. And that's totally fine. That's great. Yeah. Um, okay. So we are going to close out with the lightning round. Are you ready? As ready as I'll ever be. Okay. You can use three adjectives to describe yourself at the beginning of your career journey. What would they be? Mm. Hungry, conforming, spongy. Spongy. I Making love that up a visual. word. <laughs> <laughs> what has taught you more? Your failures or your successes? It is probably an annoying answer, but failures for sure. Something that I was asked recently that has stuck with me was, what no's are you thankful for? And there are easily more no's in my life that have brought me more success, more fulfillment, more happiness than I can count yeses. And so failures, be thankful for your no's, people. Yeah, I'm, I'm going through a season right now where I needed to hear that advice. So oh, oh. I will try to be thankful for my no's. <laughs> going to try to write them down, put them up on like my little vision board or something. Last question, Ooh. passion or paycheck? I live in New York City. Paycheck. <laughs> yes. Okay. Girls got to eat. Okay. Girls yeah. Gotta eat. Girls got to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Porter, this has been such a fun conversation. It's been emotional. It's been reflective and insightful. And I'm just so glad that the universe, just to be a little more woo-woo, um, that the universe brought us together and we got to meet because I feel like we just share so much of the same drive and sort of beautifully different perspectives on our past career. And I'm just, I'm so happy to know you. That is so sweet. Thank you so much for having me on. I am so honored to be here and so inspired by everything you have done and are doing. I cannot wait to be cheering you on from the sideline. I really appreciate that. So thank you so much. 